doing this morning? Good. Uh, for those of you who are visiting, I'm, I'm one of the pastors here. They call me Pastor T because I got a funny name. Uh, Thabiti Anibwile, on behalf of the church family, I want to welcome you here. So glad that you have come to worship with us this morning. We've come to the part of the service where we try our best to listen to God through his word. And uh, we're going to turn to the sermon in a moment. But just before we do that, a couple of folks I want to uh, acknowledge and a couple of things I want to correct in the way of the announcements. Let me start with a correction on the announcements. Uh, the potluck is on the 23rd, but don't y'all be bringing a whole bunch of vegan and vegetarian stuff up here. <laughs> y'all bring some meat. <laughs> right? Some carbs, somebody said. <laughs> we trying to eat. We ain't fasting. Bev, I'm going to let you do announcements about once a quarter. <laughs> Good announcements, once a quarter. And then I want to I recognize a dear brother that uh, I got to know as a godly man and a faithful pastor in my eight years uh, serving in the Cayman Islands. Uh, brother Everton Spence uh, is a pastor there, and his family are with us this morning. And uh, such wonderful saints, brother. It's so good to see you. It's such a surprise to get your email, and I look forward to connecting uh, this morning. So we're so glad that you're here. Uh, if you need a Bible, raise your hands. The brothers are coming down the aisles with Bibles. Uh, if you need one, raise your hand. Keep it up. They'll try to get one to you. Uh, we are this morning um, in the beginning of a new series through the book of Philippians, uh, and so turn there, if you will. Paul's letter to the Philippians. You'll find that after Ephesians and before Colossians in the New Testament. And as you turn there, let me offer a word of prayer as we come to listen to God. Father, life now is sweet. Now joy is complete, for we are saved, saved, saved. We thank you for the joy of your salvation. We thank you that in your presence there is pleasure and joy forevermore. We praise you that the kingdom is not about food and drink, but about righteousness and joy in the Holy Spirit. And oh God, how we want to be joyful in you. And we thank you for this book, which is about such serious joy, such sober joy, such stable joy, that we can have it no matter the circumstances of life. As we try to get the sweep of this book and the scope of this book, we pray that you would speak to us this morning. Speak to us, Lord. Your servants listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Happiness. That's the subject of conversations between friends. It's the desire of nearly everyone. It's even in the title of Will Smith films. Most secular magazines will tell you that happiness is having a house with a picket fence, two and a half kids, two car garage, 
and rock hard abs. I ain't been happy in a long time. <laughs> the prevailing notion of happiness in the culture, it connects happiness with material prosperity. The more stuff you have, presumably the happier you will be. There's even a so-called Christian version of that thinking. About 10 years ago, Time Magazine published an article called In Pursuit of Happiness. The punchline of the article was this, and I quote, we are terrible at predicting the source of joy. Isn't that true? Stop and think about people for a moment. Watch the world in its pursuit for happiness. Notice how people bounce from thing to thing, getting temporary high and temporary pleasure, and, and then sort of being doused in sadness and, and depression and then trying to find a, another high. They're terrible at predicting the source of joy. We don't know where to find it. We don't know how to create it. We find it difficult to maintain once we get it. What about you this morning? Are you happy? Is your life marked by deep, unshakable joy? Now, don't feel guilty if you can't say yes to that question. Unhappiness is a stable part of a fallen world. In other words, you're normal. But you can be joyful. And that's what the book of Philippians is about. Last week we began by sort of doing the historical context with a sermon in Acts chapter 16 where the gospel first came to Philippi. And before we start working our way through this book sort of paragraph by paragraph, I want this morning to preach the whole book. Don't panic. Sermon will be about the same length. <laughs> I wanted to give us a sense of the, of the entire letter so that we'll know where we're going over the coming weeks and so that we'll have, perhaps, as our burden, the overall burden of this letter. To do that, let me give you a sense of the letter's outline. You'll find that the letter can be broken up into six sections that, that alternate between sort of a, a pastoral section where Paul urges or teaches the Christians at Philippi some lesson, and then a personal update section where Paul talks about how he's doing and how the team is doing. So the first section, verses 1 to 11 of chapter 1, um, that's a, a sort of urging section, a, a pastoral encouragement where Paul says to them, listen, you are going to be saved. Then he follows that with a personal section in verses 12 to 26 where he talks about the fact that he's in prison. And, and the gist of that, that section there is this, I'm in prison but I do hope to continue in ministry. Then we get another section of, of pastoral teaching where he exhorts the people in chapter 1 verse 27 down to chapter 2 verse 18 to live a life worthy of the gospel. This salvation you have, 
should manifest itself in a particular way of living. And then he comes again to his second personal update. And that's where he explains in chapter 2, verses 19 to 30, that he's sending two of his team members, Timothy, whom we met last week, and another man named Epaphroditus to visit the church at Philippi, to update them on the ministry and to receive an update on how the church at Philippi is doing. And then we get the last two sections, another pastoral section where he's teaching them. He says, watch out for sin and press into Christ. Philippians 3, verse 1, down to chapter 4, verse 9. And then one final personal section, an update, where he thanks them for their gifts and their support. Chapter 4, verses 10 to 20. That's a general outline of the letter, but for our purposes this morning, let me give you the sermon outline. Point number one. It's where we take together Paul's personal updates. Point number one, very simply, is this. The ministry keeps going. The ministry keeps going. Point number two is where we're taking all Paul's sort of words of instruction, his pastoral urgings to the Philippian church, and we have this point. You, the church, will keep going. You will keep going. And then finally, number three, what we want to see is this theme running all the way through the letter. We want to see the sort of emotional perspective that the Apostle Paul has. And we might sum it up in these two words, rejoice always. Rejoice always. And there we want to think about the nature of Christian joy. So, first point. Paul's personal update. We might sum it up this way. The ministry keeps going. You might think of the letter of Philippians as a kind of missionary update letter to his supporters. Any of you all get letters like that? People that you pray for or support who are missionaries from time to time, they'll send you an email or a letter giving you an update on how things are going. Well, that's a very ancient practice. That's what this letter is. He's writing to the church at Philippi, people who have supported his ministry, to a church that he founded, as we saw last week, and he's given an update on life and ministry. And in this, he weaves together sort of three personal updates, and and these three personal updates are really what teach us the fact that the ministry keeps going. The ministry keeps going for three reasons. Number one, because the gospel cannot be stopped. That's what we see in chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. Look there with me. Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always in Christ, will be honored in my body, 
whether by life or by death. And these famous words, for to me, what does he say? To live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. What's Paul saying there? He wants him to know that he's okay. He's in prison, and that's bad news, but, but he's okay. And more than that, he wants him to know that the gospel is okay. The gospel's doing all right. The gospel is spreading from a prison cell to a palace guard. Amen. You know, a, a Christian who loves the gospel is, is an interesting kind of prisoner. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he goes to your jail and revival breaks out. And that's what Paul is doing. He's in prison, but he's still preaching. And notice verse 13. The, the brothers are, are strengthened by the fact that he's in prison and still preaching the gospel. And notice what's happening. Even folks who don't like Paul, verses 15 to 18, they find themselves having to preach the gospel too. Haters gonna hate. But if they're Christian haters, they gotta outdo you in preaching the gospel. Paul says in verses 19 to 26, he, he hopes to get out of prison one day so he can keep preaching himself, so he can build up the church himself. But he's in this dilemma. I'd rather be with Jesus. I love y'all, but it's far better to be with Jesus. But Christ has some work that's left undone yet. He's got a church that's not quite finished being built yet. The gospel has people it still must reach. So I'm convinced, Paul says, I'm going to remain in the body for your profit, for your blessing, for your benefit, for the furtherance of this gospel that we preach. The gospel can't be in prison, beloved. It will spread wherever you send a true gospel Christian. The ministry keeps going That's right. even if the minister doesn't. Amen. Charles Wesley put it well. God buries his workmen but carries on the work. Yeah. And there's Paul held up in a cell in the ancient empire. But the gospel like yeast is spreading. The ministry keeps going because the gospel cannot be stopped. The ministry keeps going, number two, because the team continues to function. That's what we see in chapter 2, verses 19 to 30. Paul now is going to send two messengers to the people in Philippi to update them and to get an update. Look with me there. Chapter 2, if you're new to the Bible, when I say the chapter number, that's the big number on the page. And when I say the verse number, verse 19, that's the small number on the page. Chapter 2, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. I was a son with a father. He has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it would go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. 
For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am no more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. One thing about a gospel team, you might be able to lock up one member, but you cannot stop the entire team. The ministry keeps going because the team keeps going. Paul updates the Philippians here, and he says, I'm locked up, but I've got two members coming to you, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Right now, the, the Golden State Warriors are the greatest team in professional basketball. Right now, not all time, right now. And the difference between the Golden State Warriors and last year's Cleveland Cavaliers and next year's Lakers is that if you stop LeBron, you stop the whole Cavalier team. You stop the whole Laker team. But with Golden State, if Steph Curry is off, then you got to face the Slim Reaper, Kevin Durant. And if Kevin Durant happens to have a bad day, then there's Klay Thompson out there shooting threes. And if Klay a little bit off, then Draymond Green will get you some buckets and rebounds. And now they done added Boogie Cousins. It's an incredible team. And if Paul were alive today, he'd be a Golden State Warriors fan. No doubt. No doubt. And I say that because the Warriors build their team the way Paul built his team. When I was involved in my first church plant in in North Carolina as one of the elders there, we had an older brother named David Horner, pastor of a large church in um, in Raleigh, who was a mentor to us, uh, and he told us as we were getting started, he says, now, my, the best piece of advice I got for you is surround yourself with A-plus guys. Build yourself an A-plus team. Look for godliness. Look for competence. Look for humility. Add that to your team, and everything else will seem to sort of take care of itself. And that's what Paul did, as we saw last week. He was looking for diversified, qualified, culturally sensitized, gospel-advancing men. And Timothy comes on the team. And look at Timothy now uh, in verses 20 to 22. He says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he serves with me in the gospel. Timothy is the Kevin Durant of the team. Or verse 25, check out Epaphroditus. Paul describes him as his brother, and not only that, his fellow worker, and not only that, his fellow soldier. And here's the man in verses 26 and 27 who nearly died getting the Philippians' contribution to Paul, who risked his life for the sake of the gospel. And so Paul says, receive him and men like him in the Lord with joy. Honor such people who lay down their lives for the gospel. Beloved, the ministry keeps going when the ministry is carried on by a great team. This is why I want to exhort you as members of this church, I know you do, but I want to exhort you to continue 
to pray the Lord would continue to raise up godly men and women to serve in the leadership of this church. That God would continue to produce men who would serve as elders and men and women who would serve as deacons and would be a part of this team because the gospel is too big to sit on the shoulders of one or two men. It must sit on the shoulders of the entire church and of a strong leadership. The ministry keeps going because the gospel cannot be stopped because the team keeps going. Number three, because God supplies our needs. Look with me in chapter four, verses 10 to 20. Paul has finally come to the actual thank you of the letter. He saved it to the end. And he writes there, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. And in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership for me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. That section reveals something really striking. Paul is thanking them for their gift. But he's actually making it clear that it's God who supplies our needs. And that has two profound implications. One for the minister and one for the church. For the minister, because God supplies the needs of the ministry, the minister is dependent on God, not men. That's how we might summarize Paul's Paul's words there in verses 11 to 13. He's happy to receive their gift in verse 10, but does not rely on the Philippian church or their gift, but on God. That's the secret of his contentment. Whether he faces good times or bad times, whether he has enough or whether he's lacking, he knows God is the one who strengthens him for the work of the ministry. So he rests in God in every circumstance, good or bad. Next time you hear someone quote verse 13, Ask them if they're using it the way Paul is using it. Are they saying they have learned the secret of contentment and they're satisfied and strengthened by God no matter what's going on? That's what he means. But now notice he, there's a similar implication for the church too. See, because we rely on God, then, then the Christian and the church is free to give without worry. Old preachers often say you can't beat God giving. That's true. Give as much as you like. 
and you will never give more to others than God gives to you. That's the point of Philippians 4.19. Look there again. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now, how many riches in glory does God have in Christ Jesus? The text says at least enough to supply every need you have. Your little raggedy needs ain't no problem for God's generosity. Because God supplies, we can give without worry. Now, what's remarkable about the Philippian church is that they gave generously, as Paul says, time and time again to his needs. It wasn't just that they were generous. It's also that they were very poor and generous. Paul mentions that they are the first church in Macedonia to join with him in giving. Macedonia is the bigger region in which Philippi is located. And Paul talks about the Macedonian churches and their generosity over in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 5. This is what he writes there. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Notice, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy... And their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, not, excuse me, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. This is the church he's writing to. This is a church who's marked, yes, by affliction and suffering, but also by joy, by abundant joy. And there's a strange thing that happens when their joy mixes with their suffering and affliction. It looks like generosity. Why? Because our God is able to supply every need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And realizing that God's work does not depend on man's wealth, they're free to give it away and to keep trusting God. Someone once said, God does not call us to give to get money out of our pockets but to get idols out of our hearts. The Philippians understood that because God, the true God, was in their heart and money was not their idol. Well, they were happy to give away the the, the money of, of this world in order to enjoy the riches of God's glory in Jesus Christ. God keeps the ministry going because the gospel cannot be stopped because the team keeps functioning, and because God supplies our need. Here's the recipe of a never-stopping ministry. Preach the gospel no matter what. Amen. Build a team of capable leaders. Give yourself to God and depend upon him. Amen. Amen. Which brings us to our second point. Paul then also gives these folks three sections where he's urging and teaching and encouraging them. And, and, and we might summarize these sections as the church, you, will keep going too. Not only does the ministry keep happening, but, but you and your salvation and your development in Christ, you keep happening too. 
Notice what he says there, verses 1 to 11. He says, basically, the church will keep going because God will finish saving us. You missed your place to shout. Many Christians have memorized verse 6. Let's just zoom in on that verse. Paul says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now to the Christian, those are some of the sweetest words in the Bible right there. These words tell us that God is the one who started to save us. And God is the one who will finish saving us. And think about the nature of God. God ain't never started something that he didn't finish. He started creating the universe with the word on day one. He finished the work of creation on day six. Then he took a nap. He started to make Abraham into a nation. He took one man and said, I'm going to make you so numerous they won't be able to number your descendants. And he took his time, but over several centuries, God turned Abraham into a nation of people. And he promised that he would send us a savior. Made that promise to Abraham, renewed it to David, passed it along through Israel and the prophets. And centuries upon centuries passed, but the Bible tells us in the fullness of time, born of a virgin, born under the law, God sent his son into the world to be our savior. And he is continuing that saving work even today. This same God who has never started a project and failed to finish has started to save us if our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is guaranteeing that he will carry on that work of saving us until he finishes it. Now, I don't know about you, but that's good news for me. Because I'm aware of my sins. I'm aware of my weaknesses. I'm aware of how many things I start and don't finish. How many times I break my word to you and my word to myself and my word to God. I'm aware of how hard I have tried to change some things, but feel like I can't change them. I'm aware of my corruption. I'm aware of my failing body and my failing mind and my failing spirit. I'm right there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is speaking to me saying, could you not pray and watch for one hour? And I'm like, no, I tried. And then there's this liberating thought. My finishing race is not a matter of my trying, but of my trusting. The same God who began the work in me and began the work in you says in this text, he ain't done till he done. And when he's done, it will be done. See, Christian, you're going to keep going. You're going to make it to glory. You're going to be like Jesus. You're going to reach that place where you are transformed and where you are filled with fullness of joy and glory because God is going to bring you there. God is going to carry you there. God is going to be working sometimes against you in order to make you what he wants you to be. He is good and patient. Stay on the wheel. Let him keep molding you. This same God who started this work is going to finish it. And that's why you and I are going to keep 
going. But, you know, there's something else. We're going to keep going because the same God who started to work and finished it in, but in the middle, he's going to preserve us. And he's going to preserve us from three things or through three things. Number one, he's going to preserve us through opposition and suffering. Look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. Paul says there, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This, the fact that you're not frightened and standing side by side and living a life worthy of the gospel, this is a clear sign to them, your opponent, that their destruction of their destruction is also a sign of your salvation. And where does that come from? From God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. These are, these are transformative words. Yeah. Paul says, listen, God's giving you a gift. Not just Jesus, but he's also giving you the gift of suffering with Jesus. Recognize that your suffering and your affliction and your persevering and your hardship, these are not things that surprise God. These are not things that upset his saving work in your life. These are not sort of indications that you may be lost. No, God gives you even your suffering as a gift in order to demonstrate that he's going to keep you. And you stand confident in your yeah. suffering. You stand with the like mind yeah. of the Christian church. You have the same yeah. spirit of your brothers and sisters. And you contend for the gospel. In all of that, God is showing some people some things. He's showing your opponents that they're going to be destroyed. And he's showing you yeah. that he's got you. He's preserving you through conflict and opposition. Yeah. Thank you. you don't face anything in your life that's too hard for God. If that thought gets whispered to you, it doesn't come from heaven. It comes from the pits of hell. You don't face anything. I don't face anything in my life that is too hard from God. He preserves us through opposition and suffering. He preserves us in humble Christian unity. That's what we see in that wonderful sort of hymn in chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. These famous words. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
It's a striking passage. Those first few verses in chapter 2, if there's any comfort, if there's any love, it doesn't have to be a whole lot. If as a church we share any comfort together, any love together, the text says then, Let's go on and make the apostles' joy complete and our joy complete by having the same mind, the the mind of Christ Jesus, a mind, notice, that's been given to us, a mind that is shaped by the incarnation. For our Lord came into the world in our flesh, and that way he humbled himself. And our Lord became obedient to God, obedient even unto death. And it's by that suffering that he has earned his reward. And as we meditate on the mind of Christ and as we think deep about his incarnation and his crucifixion and his suffering, our lives begin to take a cross-like shape as well. And humility becomes ours. And we look out for each other. And we grow in the sort of fullness of a humble unity which the church needs. He preserves us through our conflicts. He preserves us through our misunderstandings until we we have this humble unity together. And notice the third thing. God will preserve us in obedience even in the world's darkness. Look at chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Let's read that again. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Striking, isn't it? The Lord is going to keep us even in the world's darkness. It's going to make us shine like stars against a a dark night of of sin and corruption and fallenness. And we're called to work out our salvation in verse 13 to, to be sure that we are Christians who are serving Christ. But notice in verse 13, it is God who is at work in us to to will and to to do his good pleasure. We're steadily being worked on by God. Steadily being made better than we were. Steadily being transformed into light. And the darker this generation grows, the more brilliant though the sons of God and the daughters of God become. Sometimes people think the local church is a fragile thing. And indeed, Every church has its weaknesses. The more you look at the members of a local church, the more weaknesses you can find. 
But if you only look at the members of the local church, when you think about the church, then you miss the most remarkable thing about the church. For as fragile and weak as we are, there is an omnipotent God living in us and working on us. The beauty and the glory and the strength and the grandeur and the permanence and the growth and the joy and the success of the church isn't down to us. It's down to the one who is at work in us to will and to do his good pleasure. Our ability to escape the darkness of this generation and the corruption of sin isn't finally in our own hands. It's in the hands of the God who has snatched us from that darkness and sin and made us his own. I want you to love being Christians. I want you to love being members of a church. This organism is the most glorious thing in the earthly realm. Ephesians 3 tells us that by the church, God staggers the the powers and principalities of the world. They fall back and say, this is wisdom. How a holy God can take a sinful people and make them his own and keep them through darkness and trial. It's no small thing to be a Christian. It's no small thing to be a part of the Lord's church. And if you are a Christian, you're going to keep going. Because God will finish his saving work in your life. Because God will preserve you in everything. And finally, God is going to transform us into his likeness. That's what we see in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, down to chapter 4, verse 1. Paul writes there, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind 
and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on forward. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have given us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindsets on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform, there it is, our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. You see what Paul says here? He says, listen. I could boast of all kinds of worldly attainments. I was on the cover of Hebrews today. I had scholarships to the best rabbinic schools, born to the right family, bearing the marks of the covenant. I was zealous for Judaism beyond all my peers. I had my foot on the neck of the church. But something happened. All that I thought was worthwhile became nothing because I began to see that Jesus is everything. I saw Jesus for who he really was, the son of God come in the flesh. And I saw Jesus for what he really did, crucified on the cross to atone for my sins. And I recognized Jesus in his resurrected glory and the promise of a coming life that shall never end. And all of a sudden, in the light of Jesus and the cross and the resurrection and a glory which he offers to all people, everything I thought I had became rubbish. And now I live with this consuming purpose to, to get there, to press, to make my way to the mark. I, I lay aside every weight. I forget what was behind. I keep my eyes focused on that coming glory. And I ain't got there yet, but I, I keep pressing. I keep pressing. I keep pressing for what Christ has purchased me for. Yes. And then you get down to verse 21 and Paul says, this is what's going to happen. John the apostle says it in 1 John 3 too. Jesus is going to come, and I'm going to see him. And in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, I'm going to be transformed into the same glory that Jesus has. Oh, Christian, you're going to keep going because God got some transforming he wants to do in your life. He got some glorification he wants to share with you. He has purchased for us an eternity in that glory, and we're going to get there. Oh, beloved, if you're here and you're not a Christian, what we're offering to you is eternal joy. What we're calling you to consider is maybe something you haven't thought about deeply enough. 
And it might sound offensive. I don't mean it that way. I just, I, I just think you need to know it. Maybe you haven't thought deeply enough about the fact that everything you're living for is probably temporary. It's not lasting. And it probably suffers many threats from death to layoffs to sickness to misunderstanding. That all of your joy and happiness is bound up in things that that won't live as long as you. And if that's true, beloved, and you have this echo in your heart that, that actually something's wrong about that, that doesn't feel right, that, that all the things that, that I live for are, are temporary at best. And if there's this echo in your heart, this sense that actually I'm meant to live forever, I want to live forever. And if that seems to you to be speaking of a different world than this one, it's because it is. There is another world made of light and glory and love and joy, where God reigns, where Christ is, where all those who trust in Christ go. And there in that world, joy is permanent. And you don't have to predict it. It's given to you. For in the presence of God, there is pleasures forevermore. At his right hand, there is joy forevermore. Now, what you must do is trade your feeble joys in this life, which seems so important in this temporary life, for those eternal joys that are far better. You have to join Paul when he says, listen, everything that I had, I now count as rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ. Christ must become your treasure. Jesus must become your hope. Jesus must become your everything. And he has come to be that. Not something you just sprinkle onto your other things. But he has come to be your everything. He has come to rescue you from sin, to give you eternal life, and has purchased a home with you in his kingdom. But for you to have any of that, the Bible says you must confess your sins. You must repent of them, turn away from them. And you must accept that Jesus is Lord, your Lord, who died for your sins, who rose for your salvation, and who now commands your life as your God. And the promise is, everyone who trusts in Christ will live forever in his love and in his joy. You will have to turn away from everything in order to gain the one thing that truly is everything. Can you hear the Lord calling Confess your sin. Turn away from them. And put your hope in Jesus for eternal life and eternal joy. If we can help you understand that better, talk with us after the service. Our contact information is on the back of the bulletin. Email a pastor. Set up an appointment. Talk with the Christian friend who brought you. There's no greater joy than knowing this Jesus the source of all joy. Which brings us to our final thing this morning. Notice now Paul's emotional perspective. It's joy in all things. It's rejoicing always. This letter is shot through with a relentless joy. 
a volcanic joy that keeps erupting in every paragraph almost throughout the book. Fifteen times Paul mentions joy or rejoicing in some way. Follow me. Go back to chapter 1. Follow me real quickly. Let's skim the letter so that you can see this. It begins with with his prayer in chapter 1, verse 4. He says, making prayer with joy. It continues when he talks about his imprisonment, chapter 1, verse 18, where he says, where some people are preaching in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Verses 18 and 19, when he thinks about his own deliverance, he says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Chapter 1, verse 25, when he thinks about continuing in the ministry and getting out of prison, he says, I will remain for your progress and joy in faith. Chapter 2, verse 2, the goal of Christian unity is to make the apostles' joy complete, make Christ's joy complete. He says it in the negative in chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. Verse 17, chapter 2, when he thinks about sacrificing himself in the ministry, he says, I'm poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Chapter 2, verse 18, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. When he sends Epaphroditus in chapter 2, verse 28, he says, so that they may rejoice at seeing him again. Verse 29, he encourages them to receive Epaphroditus in the Lord with all joy. Then he just makes it a straight-up command in chapter 3, verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. Does it again in chapter 4, verse 2. Again, I'll say rejoice. Chapter 4, verse 1, he describes the church there as his joy and crown. Chapter 4, verse 10, on receiving their offerings, he writes, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. So this is a book that's principally about joy in every circumstance. But what is joy? Well, someone say joy is happiness. Well, we've only get so far with synonyms, happiness and gladness. And someone will say, well, joy is an emotion. Well, what's an emotion? Most people say, well, it's something you feel. You're just on this sort of merry-go-round and circular logic, right? Dr. Robert C. Roberts of Baylor University has written a wonderful book called Spiritual Emotions. Our brother James Mullings was the first one to recommend this book to me, and it's been an outstanding read. It's been the kind of book you read a few paragraphs, and then you just sort of lay the book in your lap and contemplate what you just read. Dr. Roberts defines an emotion, fancy words here, as a concern-based construal. A concern-based construal. That's a fancy way of saying that our emotions are based upon something we care about, and our perception of how those things are going to go. So our emotions take a care, and it takes a kind of prediction, a kind of seeing about the future of that care, and depending upon what we see, our emotions are then determined. So think about the things that you care about. 
family, job. Some of us care about eating a little too much, housing, money. Those are among the sort of important cares of this world. And there are more trivial things that we care about, sports, clothes, looks, Dallas Cowboys. I don't know why anybody would care about them. Our health. So here's the thing. If we perceive the future results are positive for something that we care about, then we get positive emotions like joy or happiness, gratitude, hope. If we perceive that the future results of our cares are negative, then we get what we think of as negative (laughs) emotions. Like anger and fear, weeping Jordan, (laughs) anxiety. So Robert says this, an emotion is a way of seeing things when this seeing is grounded in a concern. So let me give you a silly example. It came immediately to mind as I was reading that chapter. tells you something about my twisted mind. My freshman year in college, went home for one of the holidays, might have been Thanksgiving or something, and my best friend from high school was my roommate in college, and um, he didn't go home. And I went home, and I had put in the refrigerator a can of uh, mixed fruit with the syrup and all that good stuff. I love mixed fruit. When it's cold like that, pour it in a bowl and eat it. So I drove home. I was like, Dag, I ain't eating my mixed fruit. And all through Thanksgiving, I'm thinking about this mixed fruit, right? And I'm thinking about when I get back to school, first thing I'm going to do is eat that mixed fruit. I'm driving an hour to half to school, halfway speed, and thinking about mixed fruit, right? And so as long as I was seeing a future where I would enjoy that fruit, my, my emotion was basically happiness and anticipation, right? But then it dawned on me, my best friend's nickname was Pooh. Pooh been there all week. Pooh eat like me. The dining hall clothes. And so all those thoughts took what was joy and turned them into a kind of anxiety, a kind of fear. Pooh might eat my fruit. So I drove a little faster. Got back to school, got my baggage out the car, brought it in the room, man, got unpacked, got settled, went straight to the refrigerator, opened the refrigerator, wasn't nothing in that thing but frost, right? It was a big can of fruit, too. Pooh ate all my fruit, man. I, looked, I said, Pooh, man, you, you, eat my, you eat my fruit? He said, man, I was hungry. <laughs> now, having discovered that he ate my fruit changed my emotion to anger. You see how this works, right? Right. (laughs) How we perceive the future of something we care about is what ordinarily determines our emotions. Now, that's that's a silly example, but if we're honest, a lot of us have our emotions tied to a lot of cares about that superficial, don't we? And we have more than one care at a time. Some of them good, some of them superficial, and, and if our, our cares are attached to the things of this world, well, guess what happens? Our emotions are driven by the happenings and the things of this world. This is why it's so easy not to be joyful. And so we run the risk of becoming 
emotional people, right? You've met emotional people. All of us can be emotional people. This is how Roberts describes the emotional person. He says, the emotional person is weak, not because he has emotions, but because he has such poor ones or such a limited repertoire, meaning this range of emotion is pretty small. The concerns his emotions go back to are themselves momentary, primitive, immature, badly ordered. The emotional person lacks personal integration and depth, not because he feels strongly, nothing wrong with feeling strongly, but because his feelings are erratic and chaotic, or because he feels strongly about the wrong things, or because he likes something that ought to be present in addition to his strong feelings. Now, when we think about joy, the kind of joy that the Apostle Paul has in Philippians is not like the kind of ordinary joy we're describing here. We need something deeper than the ordinary, temporary cares of this world in which to root our emotions if we want to be stable, integrated, strong people with a kind of invisible joy like Paul. Now, Paul had, running through this letter, three passions. Now, a passion is not a care that you just feel really strongly about. It's a little bit more than that, according to Roberts. A passion now is, is a central organizing person, idea, or thing that defines and governs our life. A passion is a person's long-term characteristic concerns, interests, and preoccupations. It's the, it's the thing that's right here that you live for, that determines how you live. And for Paul, there were three in this letter. The gospel, Jesus, and the day of Christ. The gospel, Jesus, and the day of Christ. So in chapter 1, verse 5, Paul thanks him for their partnership in the gospel. That gives him joy. Chapter 1, verse 10, is the hope that they would be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. That gives him joy. Or when he's talking about his imprisonment in verses 12 to, to 20 or so, he says, what has happened to me in verse 12 has served to advance the gospel. You see, he's gospel-minded there. He says, it's for Christ at the end of verse 13 that I'm in prison. He says in verse 18, whether for true motive or false, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And whether he lives or dies, verse 20, Christ is going to be honored in his body. You see how Christ-centered Paul is. Or when he talks about sacrificing himself and sacrificing things for Christ. Over in chapter 3, verses 7 to 10, notice what he says there. Whatever gain I counted as loss for the sake of Christ, in order that I may gain Christ and attain the resurrection. Verses 13 and 14, he's pressing on toward that goal. Verse 20 and 21, our citizenship is in heaven. The reason we're to rejoice always, chapter 4, verse 5, notice, it's because the Lord is at hand. You see? Paul's joy is not built on lesser cares and his circumstance. He could be rightly concerned about his imprisonment. And if his joy was based on his imprisonment, then we would expect him, unless he in some way is not healthy psychologically, we would expect him to be sad or maybe discouraged or frustrated. If his joy was based merely on good preaching, 
Then when he found out that there were people who preached despite him, we would expect him to be angry or upset or, or, or frustrated or some such thing. But, but that's not how Paul roots his joy. It roots his joy in what is indestructible and permanent. The Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel which cannot be imprisoned, and the promise of the resurrection and the day of Christ. I want to show you just one thing as we close. I want to show you how then joy reasons in the Christian life when those are our passions. And I want to suggest to you that the aim of Christian discipleship is to get those to become the passions of people who had used to live for other things. So notice how joy reasons. Take, for example, that paragraph in verses 12 to 18 where he's talking about his imprisonment. Paul says, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, I'm in prison. That's a care, right? That's a concern. He says, but the gospel, that's his passion, is spreading. And then the consequence is, so I rejoice. You see, he presses through the care down to the passion, and then he finds reason there to spring back up with joy. Or let me give you another paragraph, chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. He's talking about sacrificing himself for, for their faith. He says, I am sacrificing myself. He would, he would then care about that, right? He cares about it enough to mention it. And, and again, he's a human being, and so he's feeling the pain of sacrificing himself, no doubt. That's strong language that goes back to the Old Testament and the sacrificial system where animals are killed. He says, I am sacrificing myself. That's his care. But you will stand on the day of Christ. That's his passion. So what? I am glad that's his emotion to be poured out for you. One more time. Chapter 3, verses 7 to 16. Paul says there, I gave up all things. I lost all things. That's his care. But I gained Christ. That's his passion. And so I rejoice always. That's his emotion. Now, again, our aim as Christians is to get these passions central to our existence. The spread of the gospel, the enjoyment of Jesus, and the inheritance that is to come. And then to sort of read all of life, not by the cares that are up here, but by the passions that are down here at the base. And to spring up out of those passions with a distinctively Christian virtue and emotional life. Serious joy results from that kind of Christian discipleship. So as we close, are these your passions? You will know if they're your passions by whether or not other cares are really what determine your emotions. You'll know if these are your passions by whether or not you see evidence that you organize organize your life around them. You will know if these are your passions by whether or not you think more about these passions or spend more energy thinking about cares. It's not to say the cares are bad. We're supposed to care for family. We're supposed to care for health and those kinds of things. We're not supposed to care for them like they're ultimate. When that happens, they're becoming idols. We care about Jesus and the gospel and the kingdom because they are ultimate, and they rearrange our lives. 
The aim of this series through Philippians is to help us to grow to, to, grow to be more like Paul, to help us to find the joy that Paul had by developing the passions that Paul had. Or to put it another way, I'm preaching this series because I believe God wants you and me to be seriously joyful, to be happy. I'm convinced God wants us to be happy. It's a holy happiness, and it's a happiness built on eternal things, but he has not saved us to make us miserable. He has saved us for his glory and our joy. So as we go through Philippians, pray that by his spirit, he would give us these passions and grow in us this serious joy. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the book of Philippians. We thank you for the apostle Paul. And we thank you for using another human being like Paul to show us divine things that are ours in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we do confess to you today that many days we are just kind of moribund and listless, feeling kind of blah. Other days we are grumblers and complainers and unhappy. We are discontent. And then sometimes, Lord, we're joyful, but not always for the right reasons. Father, we're asking that you would help us with our hearts, help us with our thinking. We're asking that you would grow in us the passions you desire for us. That at the center of our lives, organizing our lives, sustaining our lives, directing our lives, would be Jesus Christ our Lord, would be his gospel, and would be the hope of the resurrection and the coming kingdom. And we would live out of joy, out of the joy that comes from those indestructible things. Do this, we ask, for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.